During Lent, we've journeyed together through a series called The Beautiful Life, The Fruits of the Spirit for a Worried World. Today we'll look at the final three fruits of the Spirit, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Today is also Palm Sunday, when Christians remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday marks the beginning of Holy Week, the sacred days in which we remember Jesus' last days on earth, his suffering and death and the anticipation of resurrection. Therefore, I want to approach today's message differently. Instead of focusing on gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control in the abstract, I want to locate them in the person of Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem on that ancient road. This morning, let's make space to look at Jesus on this strange moment of Palm Sunday. Consider how these fruits of the Spirit are at work in that moment of his life on earth. And imagine how God may want to form those same fruits in us. Let us pray. Father God, we pray that you would come and through your Holy Spirit that you would do this morning what we are powerless to do without your help. That you would open your word to us that we might see and encounter Christ, Lord. It's the incarnate God made known to us right in the midst of our lives, right in the midst of whatever we're going through. Would you minister to us in whatever place we find ourselves today? Bring your encouragement, your peace, and your hope, and your leadership and power to our hearts, that we might be able to know you more as a fruit of this time, and be strengthened more to reveal your kingdom and love our neighbor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How often does our world think of Jesus as a peacetime God? A deity who only shows up in stock photo towns full of shallow people with surface-level problems, nice clothes, fake smiles, and pretty landscaping. Such a Jesus, it seems, would be afraid of mess, helpless in the face of brutal complexity, and would not know what to do about the societal issues that outsmart us or the personal fears that keep us up at night. But in the midst of a world gripped by pandemic chaos, I am struck by the images of Holy Week, of Jesus, God in the flesh, riding on a donkey and calmly walking down Main Street in a town that wouldn't register in the minds of the emperors and kings who were busy carving up the globe. Jesus quietly steps over the thrown down palm fronds and laid out cloaks of men who'd lost jobs, women who'd had miscarriages, spouses who were struggling to love each other, children suffering with diseases, a workforce oppressed by a totalitarian regime, religious grandmas who'd been waiting a long time for God to show up, and all of them shouting, God, save us! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This scene actually happened which can be hard to believe because it feels so surreal, so made for TV. I mean, where do we even go to get the categories of someone entering a city and everyone taking note? A Western movie when the hero cowboy squares off against the outlaw in the deserted, dusty street? A presidential motorcade closing down I-75 on the way to a political rally? Why are these people taking note of Jesus? Why, as Matthew 21 tells, 10 tells us, was the whole city stirred up by Christ's arrival with everyone wondering, who is this? 
A few verses earlier, Jesus told his disciples to go into the village and bring him a donkey they would find tied up because, quote, he will need it. Jesus' followers see what is happening here. They watch their leader and teacher, the man they'd seen speak to storms and make them stop, the man who'd cured sick people and raised dead people to life, the man who'd gone toe-to-toe with religious leaders and stood up for the cause of the oppressed. They watched this same Jesus climb on the back of a donkey and enter into the Jewish capital. Matthew, the gospel writer, explains what Jesus' disciples and the watching crowds would have understood about these actions. This took place, Matthew says, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then Matthew quotes from the prophet Zechariah, whose words are recorded toward the end of the New Testaments in our of the Old Testaments in our Bible. Say to the daughter of Zion, aka the Jewish people, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. This quote comes in the midst of a prophecy in Zechariah about a future day when God will judge Israel's oppressors. The prophecy tells Israel to rejoice that their king is coming to her on a donkey. Why? Because in that day, verse 14 explains, The Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine. When I read those words, the first image that comes to my mind is that of Mary and Pippin sitting on the shattered walls of Isengard after their victory over Saruman. I mean, these are the sorts of words I imagine military commanders saying to a troop to psych them up before a battle as epic as storming the beaches of Normandy. They're words of military conquest, vindication, and political rescue for a persecuted people. They're words that say when you see the king riding on a donkey, it means God is about to absolutely kick some political tail and overthrow your oppressors with military might. In Cincinnati, this might be comparable to news that someone is standing in Fountain Square throwing out free money or distributing the first round of a tested, approved, and working COVID-19 vaccine. There are words that seem to promise that now all your problems are over. The day of victory over your enemies has come. When Jesus walked into Jerusalem, he walked into the midst of great need. He stared down desperation face to face. He came close to our complexity and calmly walked right through the downtown thoroughfares of our anxiety. And he did this in a way that fulfilled what Israel's prophets said would happen. No wonder everyone freaked the heck out. Word of his coming must have spread through the streets like a viral video. More people tuned in to watch this than Tiger King. All eyes were on Jesus. The people saddled him with all their expectations, freighted him with the burden of fulfilling all their wants, hopes, and dreams immediately. And there walked Jesus, calm amidst all Jerusalem's crazy, not trying to hype anything up, not embracing this moment as some sort of entry point to stardom, but simply being present, simply moving forward to continue the work he'd come here to do. Astonished by his strangeness, everyone wondered, what will he do? How will he fix everything? How might he save us? 
Can you imagine the pressure people were putting on Jesus in this moment? I wonder what it felt like to Jesus, how he handled it. I remember a few years back talking to a leader that I respect in our denomination and asking him a question, what do you ask to leaders in your own life that you've respected and admired? One of the answers he gave me was this. I asked them, how do you handle the pressure? Leadership involves handling pressure. You have to deal with people who expect you to perform, who are frustrated with your decisions, or who just want more of your time than you feel able to offer. I don't know about you, but I don't always deal with pressure very well. When I have a lot I need to get done and not a lot of time to do it, I can start to get irritable with people. A lot of who I want to be and how I'd want to behave just goes out the window. In other words, pressure or stress are threats to my gentleness. And this is what amazes me about Jesus in this moment. He's able to remain composed, gentle in the midst of this great pressure. Not only is he taking the burden of a whole nation's expectations that he'll fulfill all their hopes and dreams instantly, but he's days out from the cross. Jesus was fully human, but he was also fully God, so he knew what was coming. He knew not only that a whip would tear skin off his back, that thorns would be pressed into his scalp and that nails would be driven through his hands, but he also knew that his best friends would betray him, fall asleep when he needed them to pray, abandon him in his most vulnerable moments. He knew that these same crowds lining the streets and celebrating him with shouts of Hosanna today were the same people who would be shouting, Crucify him! by Friday. And yet Jesus still came close to those people. He still knelt down to wash the feet of the friends he knew would betray them. He still shared a meal and spoke the innermost secrets of his heart with those same friends. Gentleness is defined as the quality of being kind or tender, being marked by a softness of action or effect. And I see profound gentleness in Jesus, not just through what Jesus did, but in who Jesus even is. The incarnation is the gentleness of God. When humanity rebelled against God through sin, God would have had everybody to just kill us instantly or at least file a heavenly restraining order against us delivered by angry angels who would strip us of shelter, clothing, and dignity as just payment for our betrayal of our maker. But God didn't do that. Even as humanity left the Garden of Eden, God sewed clothes for them to cover their nakedness. What a profound image of the gentleness of God. When you sin against him in a way that causes you shame, he helps clothe you to save your dignity. When you are getting ready to betray God and murder him, he kneels down to wash your feet. He carries so much pressure, and yet he is unanxious. He remains gentle in his love for us and his heart towards us, even in the shadow of the cross. Jesus' first invitation for us who would want to be like him is an invitation to know him. Have you experienced that gentleness of God towards you in your life? 
Do you believe that the cross and sufferings of Jesus are emblems of how much God desires to care for you and bring you close to him? Do you know in your place of greatest anxiety that God is not watching indifferently from heaven, but showing up right in the room with you, grieving with you, holding you intentionally in existence, gently and continuously loving? The road to becoming gentle like Jesus is first to know the Jesus who is gentle. To believe both that the incarnation of God happened once in Christ, and yet happens still through the God who in Jesus is gently present with you in every pressurized moment of your life, wanting to walk with you and take the anxious burden off of your shoulders and place it on his. The gentleness we see in Jesus flows into faithfulness. Just as it is striking to consider that as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he knew what was coming because he was God, it is likewise striking to know that Jesus didn't want to go through his sufferings because he was human. Just a few nights after the triumphal entry, Jesus finishes dinner with his friends and walks out with them into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. In this moment, the gospel writers give us a window into the full humanity of Christ. In Matthew 26, verse 38, Jesus tells his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He pleads with his friends, Stay here and watch with me. Elsewhere, we read that as Jesus prayed, the force of his anxiety turned his sweat into blood. He cried out to God, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will but as you will. The Holy Spirit forms the fruit of faithfulness in us when loving God and following Jesus cost us something. And God does not ask us to do anything in the life of faith that he himself in Jesus has not already done. Jesus knows what it's like to love and obey God even when it hurts and requires great sacrifice. Many of you right now probably find yourself facing a situation or a decision that requires great faith for you to have the courage to act. To keep working on your God-given dream for your business when the finances are unclear. To prioritize loving your family, your children, or your spouse, even when the kids are all home and you don't know how you can possibly both be present for them and get all your work done at the same time to keep showing up for Christian community even when it's digitally mediated, glitchy and annoying, and you don't get much out of it in the short run. To keep believing in Jesus when you're not even sure how to look for or see his presence in a lockdown, diseased, and fearful world. If you feel like faithfulness is hard right now, Jesus can relate. He knows what it's like to stare down his own suffering and death and say, God, I don't want to do this. But at the end of the day, I want what you want for me and through me for the world more than what I want for myself. Because I love you, because I belong to you, and because I believe that any road you would call me to walk down will end in a good place, not just for me, but for other people. Because that's just who you are, and that's always why you do what you do. Jesus could face great suffering that came in the course of his obedience to God because he knew who God was and he knew what God had promised.
He knew that God is good and that he's promised to always work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Eventually, and in some mysterious way, we can't quite see or figure out this side of heaven. When faithfulness is a challenge, God calls us to remember who he is and what he's promised to do. Do you believe that an empty tomb and a freed and healed humanity could exist on the other side of your faithful suffering? Do you believe that in Christ, God binds up all of the small stories of our faithful actions and ties them together to Jesus' story? So that somehow the world is made better, our hearts are made more like his, and our spirits are filled by the Holy Spirit with the same faithfulness Jesus demonstrated on the road to Calvary's cross. Every time we are willing to say yes to him and move forward in faithfulness, even when it's hard. Jesus' gentleness and faithfulness flow into the third and final spiritual fruit of self-control. In a privileged America obsessed with self-actualization, I think self-control gets a bad rap. We hear self-control and automatically think in terms of no, what we can't do or what we need to restrain ourselves from doing. But what I see in Jesus looks different. Saying no to bad things is part of Christ's self-control. He faced the temptations of money, power, and self-made provision in the wilderness early in his ministry, and I'm certain he still faced those things during Holy Week in Jerusalem. When he walked in, people wanted to make him king, to have him lead the armies they thought he'd raise to battle the Romans. But Jesus didn't give in to what they wanted. He said no to their expected vision for his life. But Jesus didn't just say no to bad things. He also said yes to good things, even when they were hard. Later that week, he walked into the temple in Jerusalem and saw the money changers and the way their practices took advantage of people. He could have just turned a blind eye and kept the peace because, you know, that would have definitely been easier. Instead, he turned over tables, raged against injustice, and pissed off a lot of people doing it. People who suddenly turned from approving of him to wanting to kill him. And in those final hours, Jesus made the choice to say yes to the greatest sacrifice in history. He chose to suffer, to take up the cross and die so that people could come close to God again. In the midst of all of this, Jesus wasn't just determining right and wrong in his own heart, saying yes to good stuff and no to bad stuff based off his best thinking. Jesus was guided by his relationship with his Father. Self-control for Jesus wasn't just about following rules. Self-control for Jesus was about loving God. It wasn't about dead religion, but about relationship. And the centrality and intimacy of his relationship with God gave Jesus power to say no to incredibly seductive things that would have totally derailed his mission. And also to say yes to incredibly hard things that changed the world and that saved us. We are living right now in a cultural moment that requires a lot of self-control. Social distancing, good hygiene, and sheltering in place require us to say no to a lot of things we would ordinarily want to be doing. And if we're just doing all of this for the sake of meaningless restraint, 
like trying to prove how good we are at lockdowns or something, sooner or later we are going to crack. But if we're doing all of these things in order to love our neighbors, then our social distancing self-control becomes less about restraint and more about relationship. And if by saying no to what we want, we recognize that we're actually saying yes to loving and caring for others, then our persevering power will grow and we'll find hope in the midst of the hardship. Self-control is not about rules. It's about relationship. A relationship with Jesus that gives us guidance, courage, and strength to say no to things that will destroy us. And yes to beautiful, even difficult things that will give us life because we're not living for ourselves anymore, but out of great love for another. I don't pretend to have any answers as to why everything going on in our world is happening right now. I'm grieved by the many things we've lost over the past few weeks. My heart is heavy for those of you I know who have been personally affected by all this. For friends and family who have been hospitalized or who have passed away. For those struggling with mental health and burdened by the strain of the new normal. I wish so badly we could be together in person this week. It doesn't feel right to do Holy Week alone. And yet, as I've wondered what God might be doing in all of this, I've been struck by the personal invitation of Jesus I believe he's extending to all of us this week. To press in through the crazy to find him. Not just to learn more about him, but to know him more. To walk with Jesus through a holy week on the road into Jerusalem to the cross and empty tomb. To linger with him, watching what he does and says, seeing what he's like in each of these moments, and asking him to form more and more of his life in us by grace and through faith. So that we can be gentle, faithful, and self-controlled people who help and heal the world around us too. How well do you know Jesus today? What was the last thing you saw him do or heard him say? Mission Cincinnati makes space to linger with Jesus on the Jerusalem road this week. Take a new step of coming closer to him. And for some of you, maybe that step is a choice to say, Jesus, I want to come to know you for the first time. I'm willing to jump over all of the questions and all of the doubts and all of the fears and all the things I don't fully understand about who you are so that I can come close to you and grab hold of you for the first time and trust that somehow if I find you, you'll put all the other pieces together. For some of you, it's a step of growth, a step of resuming rhythms of intimacy with Christ to spend more time with him. So that as you spend time with him, you rejoice in the fullness of his character that he's forming more and more completely and vividly in you. Amen.